This is part three of this study that we're calling Light and Darkness. We're working our way verse by verse through the ninth chapter of John's Gospel. And so what we have uh, to read uh, as we get started is this third major section, which is the largest uh, section that we're going to study together. It's verses 17 through 34. The Bible says, They say unto the blind man again, What sayest thou of him that he hath opened thine eyes? He said, He is a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him that had received his sight. And they asked them, saying, Is this your son, who ye say was born blind? How then doth he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But by what means he now seeth, we know not. Or who hath opened his eyes, we know not. He is of age. Ask him. He shall speak for himself. These words spake his parents, because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if any man did confess that he was Christ, he should be put away out of the synagogue. Therefore said his parents, He is of age. Ask him. Then again called they the man that was blind, and said unto him, Give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered and said, Whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. One thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. Then said they to him again, What did he to thee? How opened he thine eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and ye did not hear. Wherefore would ye hear it again? Will ye also be his disciples? Then they reviled him and said, Thou art his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spake unto Moses. As for this fellow, we know not from whence he is. The man answered and said unto them, Why herein is a marvelous thing, that ye know not from whence he is, and yet he hath opened mine eyes. Now we know that God heareth not sinners. But if any man be a worshiper of God, and doeth his will, him he heareth. Since the world began, was it not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind? If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. They answered and said unto him, Thou wast altogether born in sins, and dost thou teach us? And they cast him out. We're talking about this statement that Jesus made about himself. I am the light of the world. And what we uh, suggested was that when you get to chapter 9 and you read in verse number 5 where Jesus says, I am the light of the world, what happens is that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Let me show you what that looks like. Let me give you examples of what it looks like for Jesus to bring light into the darkness of this world. And so in the first two parts, we looked at four examples of Jesus bringing light into the darkness. And by way of review, uh, we saw the contrasting perspectives of Jesus and the disciples. So one way that Jesus brought light in this story is he brought light to his disciples. They had a blind spot. They thought about sin and suffering, and their thinking was very limited. It was very temporal. And Jesus offered them an eternal perspective. And we talked about how wonderful it is that we have a Savior who loves us and is patient with us. And He will walk alongside us as we grow and as we learn where we are wrong so that we can change. That's the kind of Savior that we have. So Jesus brought light to His disciples. Then we saw the healing of the blind man. This is verses 6 and 7. And the healing of the blind man 
is both a picture of salvation and an example of compassion. So the most obvious example of Jesus being the light is when he literally brings light into the life of this man. He's blind, and Jesus says, I'm going to give you sight. And what we talked about was how the healing was both an example, a beautiful picture of salvation. That's the work that Christ wants to do in the life of every person. He wants to save those who believe. And isn't that a wonderful thing? That he wants to bring people from spiritual darkness to spiritual light. And then we talked about how the healing was an an example of compassion. Jesus showed us what it looks like to see someone in their need, to see someone who needed help, and to help them to be moved to action. Because that's what compassion is. It's love that acts. And so there was the healing of the blind man. Then, last week, we looked at two more examples. In verses 8 through 12, we saw the testimony of the healed man. The man became a witness for Jesus. And he told his story to anyone who would ask. And we talked about last week, and we'll talk about it again this week. What's so interesting about this part is that this man doesn't even fully understand who Jesus is. He's not going to fully understand until the end of chapter 9. Jesus is going to come to him. He's going to reveal himself to be the Messiah, and he's going to invite this man to believe, and this man will believe. Even in the text we just read, when they continue to press him, he says, listen, I don't know if he's a sinner or not, but I do know this. I was blind, now I can see. Right? So his, his understanding is limited, and yet he becomes a very bold witness. And what we talked about last week was the simple testimony, how he just he kept it about Jesus, he told his story, and he was honest. Right? And we ended last week um, uh, with the testimony of the healed man and then the reaction of the Pharisees. This was the final example, verses 13 through 16. The Pharisees reveal their hypocrisy, their pride, and their self-righteousness. So Jesus puts a spotlight on the Pharisees. And he reveals for all that are willing to see who they really are. And we talked about how when Jesus shows up, things change. And when he brings light into the situation, what that does is it reveals sin. And it invites those of us who will to repent and to change, right? He cares enough about us to bring light into the darkness. And for the Pharisees, they didn't like that because who they really were and what they were really all about was on full display. This is how Jesus is the light of the world. He brings light into the darkness. So as we continue in the story, we see two more examples tonight of how Jesus is the light of the world and the way that he reveals um, what we cannot see. And we start with this next example, which is the opposition of the people. The opposition of the people. After being questioned by the Pharisees, the man immediately faced more opposition from the people. And it quickly becomes clear that despite the fact that a miracle has taken place, there are people who are not happy. Instead of celebration... There's all this hostility. And why is that? The reason is because there is evil that is at work in this world. And there's evil that's at work, and that evil is opposed to Jesus and to the gospel. And so the reason why, despite the fact that very clearly God has worked in their midst, there were people who were upset and were going to do everything to stop this man from telling his story, to stop the influence of Jesus from spreading. Why? Because there's evil at work in the world. And before we talk about the specific ways that they opposed him and how that kind of applies to our life, it's important for us to understand this point. Ultimately, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. The Bible says in Ephesians 6, 11 and 12, put on the whole armor of God 
that ye may, may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Ultimately, there is evil, unseen forces of evil that are at work in the world. And that is the en- that, that, though, that evil is the enemy, right? Those are the ones that we are to arm ourselves in preparation for battle. Now, sometimes that evil does work in and through people. And so people will oppose us or people will treat us a certain way. And that evil is working in and through people. But what helps us to be able to trust the Lord and continue to be able to serve Him is when we recognize that ultimately, if there are those who are being cruel to us because of our faith, who will see some examples of the ways that people can come after us because of our faith, ultimately it's because of the evil that's at work in this world. And what they need is what we needed was to be delivered from the darkness of this world, to have freedom in Christ. Jesus told His disciples in John 15, and verses 17 through 20, These things I command you, that ye love one another. If the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own, but because ye are not of the world. But I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. Jesus told his disciples that you have to understand that where the opposition is focused first and foremost is me. Now you're my followers. You're going to try to reach this world with the message of th- that I'm teaching you. But where the opposition starts is with Jesus. And, and if you're trying to live for Christ and follow the Lord and be his ambassador in this world, and you face opposition because of your faith and because of your obedience, you need to understand before you take it personal, the object is Jesus. The one who they're trying to stop is Jesus. Because here's the reality of the thing. I can't change anybody's life. I can't do anything to help rescue people from their sin. It's not me. It's Jesus. He is the threat. And one of the ways that the devil kind of gets the upper hand on us is he gets us to take these things personally. And listen, that's just normal because, well, we're human beings. But understand that when it comes to our faith, the opposition is first and foremost against Jesus because he's the one that makes the difference. He's the one that people need and he's the one that people hate. Ultimately, Jesus makes it very clear in John 3.19 what the problem is here. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and what? And men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Jesus is the light of the world. When Jesus shows up, circumstances change and lives are transformed. He disrupts things. When Jesus comes, he disrupts things. One of the things at the end of uh, the section that we studied in verse number 16, when he says there was division among the people. Now, in the context, that's just describing to us what was happening. They were disagreeing. But in a much bigger sense, that is what happens when Jesus comes along. What happens is people have to choose. Jesus brings us to a place of decision. And when that decision is made and one person says, I'm going to follow Jesus and one person not, what's that create? Right? Jesus upends the, the status quo, the comfortable. Right? The reason there's people in this story that don't like what's being said and they don't want it to keep being said is because it represents a real threat to what they prefer, to what they would love to see continue. And so... 
when we talk about Jesus being the light of the world, him bringing light into darkness, the opposition of the people, the way in which they fight and they push back against us because of our faith, it's, it's because of the work that Jesus is doing in the world. So what are the examples? What are some of the things that we see as far as opposition? We see false accusations. At the, end of, at the beginning of verse number 18, it says, but the Jews did not believe concerning him. Isn't that a funny part of the story? We don't, I mean, I think he would know if he was blind and then he could see. But they're like, you know what? We don't believe you. We're going to go and find your parents. We're going to go and bring somebody else in. It's very clear that the way they were treating him at this point, because he won't change his story, because he won't stop talking, they've decided to treat him like a liar. They've decided to treat him like what, he, what he's saying is intentionally an attempt to deceive false accusations. There's nothing quite like being accused of being untruthful or, being, or watching as your own beliefs or the things that you hold dear are misrepresented. But Jesus offers words to us in this situation. Matthew 5 and verse number 11, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and, say sh- and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. There are going to be moments where what we believe, what matters to us, what we're trying to accomplish in the world is misunderstood and the evil that's at work and the working through the people, it will be presented in a false way. Have you ever had, have you ever been listening and heard someone talk about Christians and the way they start describing how Christians are and the way they behave and you think to yourself, that's not me. That's not who I am. That's not what I'm trying to accomplish. And you're seeing it right in front of you. It's playing out right in front of you. Lies are being told. And what we said a moment ago, we say again, the trap of the devil is this. Take that personal. Like, look, they're lying about us. And so we've got to do something about them lying about us. We've got to set the record straight. And here's the thing. While there is certainly a place to defend the truth, we have to be careful that we don't get distracted from the mission. Jesus said, blessed are you. The words of Jesus are that this is going to happen. You have to understand there's evil at work. It's opposed to me and to the gospel. And so the result is that there's going to be some false accusations. What's the example uh, that we have? What's the instruction that we're given? Peter, writing to Christians who were facing this very problem. They were being mistreated. They were being lied about. 1 Peter 3, verses 13 through 17. And who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh the reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing, than for evil doing. What is, the, uh, what is the challenge to us in Scripture? The challenge to us is this. If people lie about you, demonstrate through the way that you live and the way that you carry out your, the way that you live out your faith, demonstrate that it's quite clearly not true. Don't play into the mischaracterizations. Don't allow their lying and the way that they mistreat you. Don't allow it to to cause you to behave that way, that's the temptation of our flesh. Jesus said, what you and I need to do, what, what we are called to do, is to have a good conscience, 
to keep following Jesus, to keep doing what he's asked us to do. False accusations. It's not fun to get lied about. It's not fun to be mischaracterized. But you and I have been called to just keep being faithful. Right? So there's false accusation. But there's another, there's another example of, of opposition that we see. And this one, this one hits close to home. There's this family rejection. One of the most difficult parts of the story is when we read about this man's parents. When given the opportunity to speak on behalf of their son, the parents instead chose to respond in fear. And the lack of support is something that we can all relate with. And so can Jesus. We'll get to that in a minute. But when we look at the text, what happens is, okay, we don't believe you, right? So they accuse him of being a liar. Let's go get his parents. And so they bring his parents, and we know as we read further along that where they're at is in the synagogue, right? By this time, the, the whole conversation has moved into the courtyard of the synagogue. And so they bring his parents, and they say, is this your son that was born blind? And they say, yep, that looks like him, right? That <laughs> looks like pretty sure that's him. And they're like, so he was born blind. How can he now see? Explain it to us. And what they say is, okay, he was born blind, but how this all went down, right, how it changed, how he can see now, we don't know. He's a big boy. Ask him. Now, it would be reasonable if we read that in the text to think, okay, that's a reasonable situation. But the text gives us more information that reveals to us what was really going on. They did know how he had come to see. It seems very likely from what we read in the text that he had told his parents the same story. This man named Jesus came and he made clay and he put it on my eyes. He told me to go wash exactly what he had been telling people, what they're all upset about. They had told his parents. But his parents had become aware of just how angry the people had gotten. And what is revealed to us in this part of the text is what will actually become reality at the end of this portion of the, of the chapter. And that is, if he keeps talking, we're throwing him out. And anybody that keeps talking like he's talking is getting thrown out. And so in this moment, when they had a chance to stand alongside their son and speak on behalf of their son, they instead backed up and said, he can speak for himself. This lack of support from his family must have been very difficult for him. Can you imagine having been in their position? He was born this way. They raised him this way. They cared for him this way. But now, in this moment, an opportunity to say, yeah, he was blind. Now he can see what an awesome miracle has occurred in our son's life. They don't have anything to say. And if you're like me, you can relate to this part of the story in a very personal way. If you are a believer in Jesus and you have family, whether it's immediate or extended family, and they are not believers, you understand a little bit what it's like to have a lack of support and love from people who you're related to. And it's a challenge for us. And in this way, once again, we look to the example of our Savior Jesus. Because not only can everyone in this room relate to this, Jesus can relate to it too. John chapter 7, verses 3 through 5, His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence, and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, 
show thyself to the world, for neither did his brethren believe in him. Jesus' own family are telling him that what he should do is go and make himself known to as many people as possible. And it's revealed to us very clearly in the text because they didn't believe. They didn't believe that Jesus was who he said he was. When it comes to a lack of family support to people who are in our life, who love us and who care about us, when it comes to a lack of support, Jesus knows what we're going through. What are some words of wisdom and encouragement when it comes to a lack of family support? Number one, if you have family, people that you're related to, and they don't know Christ, number one, you ought to love them. You ought to love them the way that Jesus has called us to love other people. You ought to look for ways that you can demonstrate to them the love of Christ. You ought to look for ways that you can serve them and encourage them. Now, listen, sometimes because there's such a major difference between what we believe and what our values are, that sometimes that makes having a healthy relationship difficult, right? And sometimes it means there has to be distance between uh, people in our family. And sometimes it means that there's really no consistent communication or, or time with at all. Regardless of the situations that you find yourself in, all of us are called to love people the way that Christ loves them. And that includes our family. And if you have people in your life, family members, they don't believe, and there's challenges because of that, you ought to love them. Now, not only should you love them, but you should pray for them. You know, as much of a challenge as it is sometimes to have a relationship with people in our family that don't share our faith, and sometimes it doesn't, it's certainly not as healthy as we'd like it to be. And you may have to make decisions about how much time you spend with that person, how much communication you have with that person, because you have to take into account your spiritual health and your mental health. Those decisions are one thing, but the decision to not pray for your family, there is nothing that anyone in your family can do to make you stop praying for them. That's a choice I have to make. That's a choice you have to make. If you have family members that don't believe, that don't understand your faith, that don't support you in your life of following Jesus, you ought to love them, and you ought to pray for them. Consistently, intentionally, earnestly pray for them. Ask God to change them in the way that only He can change them. I remember when we were, my mom is here, she'll know the story I'm talking about. I remember when we had a, uh, we were uh, serving alongside my parents at a church we started in Pennsylvania, and uh, we were uh, inviting people to church, and this older couple came, they were in their, um, they were in their late 60s, and uh, he had just recently retired, and she had been retired for a little bit of time. And they came to church, and they heard the gospel, and they got saved. They, had, they came because they were invited. They heard the gospel. They got saved. They had gone to church a couple of times when they were younger. Then they never went back, never consistently went, never went to church. But they came, they heard the gospel, and they got saved. And man, they were ready to learn and to grow and to understand what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. And with... In a couple weeks, they were ready to start with discipleship and get baptized. And I mean, they were all in. And then they talked to their adult children. None of them lived locally, right? They had several adult children that lived in different states. And they started having phone conversations with their adult children. And their adult children started to tell them, no, you guys, you're retired. You don't have a lot going on. There's not family there. You're... 
you're getting pulled into this because you have emptiness in your life and you just need to you need to settle yourself down like what you're talking about all these things that you're saying about god and about like you didn't you didn't raise us in church you didn't tell us any of these things and and look how we turned out we didn't need any of that you didn't need it when you were when you just got married and you didn't need it raising us and you don't need it now can you imagine having just put your faith and trust in jesus and you're excited your newfound faith there's, it's, it's the most important thing in your life. And then the people closest to you tell you, well, put the brakes on. And I can remember them coming and expressing to my parents, what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? I mean, they're, they're, the things that they're telling us and what they're, how are we supposed to handle this? I mean, they're our children and we love them. That struggle was so very real. Now, I'd like to say, that they were able to move on beyond that. But it, it took them off the path. And they struggled to get back into it. Why? Because of something as difficult to work through as the opposition of our family. Listen, I understand how much of a struggle it must be if you have people in your life that you love, they don't share your faith, and it causes issues. Love them. Pray for them. But one final thought. This is why right here is so important. If you want a reason why we ought to be connected to a local church, an active part of a local church, is because this is the family of God. Listen, this is not about, oh, just let it leave your family behind, right? No, this is, we're not a cult, right? That's not how we operate, right? It's not about leaving your family behind. It's about recognizing that you're going to have people in your life, fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles and cousins, people that you love, that you would love to see share your faith, and they don't. And when it comes to the community and the family and the encouragement that you need, that's the role, that's the design of the local church. It's a place where you can find family and find community. And it's the reality of this opposition, this way that we can be opposed in our faith that makes the local church, the local assembly, all the more important in the spiritual life of the believer. Psalm 2710, when my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me up. Isn't that a wonderful promise? Sometimes people that we love, people close to us, they let us down and they disappoint us, but we have a God who's faithful. And you can rest and find comfort and strength in your faith. And I want to encourage you that even in the face of this kind of opposition, a lack of support from people that we love and family, you can be faithful. Right? Jesus is the light of the world. The opposition that we see from people, this, this kind of opposition is not because of you and me. It's because Jesus changes things. It's because there are, there's evil at work in this world that wants to maintain the status quo, and Jesus upends the status quo. And there's, there's the false accusations, there's a lack of family support, and then there's mocking, just straight-up ridicule. The Bible says after he's made a passionate defense for what he believes to be the truth, the Bible says they reviled him. They reviled him. They made fun of him. Right? One of the ironic statements that they make is they say, give God the praise. Did you catch that when we were reading the story? We are so fed up with you constantly talking about Jesus of Nazareth. You need to give God the praise. Isn't it amazing how they would use the language of worship 
to go after this guy and to discredit him and to minimize the influence of Jesus? Why are they talking that way? And that's the experience that so much of us have. They mock and they ridicule. Doesn't it? It hurts when what we believe and what is dear to us is made fun of. When it's acted, when it's uh, portrayed in such a negative way. Um, whether it's in, uh, if maybe you've had this experience in popular culture. I, I know I have. If I'm watching a movie or television show and the person is religious, it's almost certainly that they're going to be the bad guy. It's almost certainly that they're going to be a crazy person. And they're going to start talking in ways that I've never heard anybody talk. (laughs) Now, is it true that there are people who claim to be Christians and they're crazy and they act crazy? There are people that do, have done things in the past and they're doing things now and they use religion as a justification or they use Jesus as a justification and it's wrong and we know it's wrong? Absolutely. And the, and the tactic of the evil that's at work in this world is we're going to take these extreme examples and we're going to paint all Christians with a broad brush and so you're watching this and you're hearing this and what happens? It's the same thing that we talked about with the false accusations. We get upset and we've got to do something about this. We've got to to change the narrative. We've got to do something about this. And listen, again, I pray that God gives us wisdom to address some of the real issues that we see in our culture and to do it with, with boldness and with the truth. But there is one message that every person needs to hear, and it's that God loves them and died for them and was buried and rose again for them so that they can be saved. That's the message that everyone needs to hear. And what happens is we see all of these mischaracterizations and the mocking and the ridicule and we get upset and we get frustrated and so we're going to we're going to do something about that and jesus says no you don't don't get sidetracked by that when we look in first peter peter writing to the believers again this is the believers that are facing opposition they're experiencing what we're talking about in chapter 2 verses 21 through 25 he says for even here unto were you called Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. The response of Jesus to the mocking and the ridiculing was to commit himself, the Bible says, to him that judges righteously. He said, I am going to give this to my heavenly father. He's in control. He's going to take care of that. You say, that is so difficult to do. I know. It's so difficult when the mocking and the ridicule is so pervasive and so personal. But what we need to do is give it to God and stay on mission. Give it to God and focus on what really matters. Because what is it that they're opposed to? What is the evil in this world opposed to? You, me, our opinions, our ideas? No, zero interest in any of that. The opposition is to Jesus and the gospel. And listen, if he can get us as believers with our feelings hurt and frustrated by the way things are portrayed so negatively and so incorrectly by popular culture if he can accomplish that he will be very very happy so we have to say no i'm going to give that over to god i'm going to trust him there's a there's a righteous just god who's going to make the wrong things right and i am going to keep on about the mission of telling people about what jesus has done for me i'm not going to let the mocking and the ridicule discourage me. Peter will later go on in the same letter in chapter 3 to give a blueprint for this. He says, finally be all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, 
not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but counterwise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. He says, not only should you not revile, not only should you not respond in kind, but instead respond with a blessing. Instead, return it with a blessing. When I first started working at the company that I worked for in Pennsylvania for 10 years, the first day I was there, I met a guy named Jesse. Jesse did not like me. Thank you, Carl. You're the only one that sounded surprised by that. No, Jesse did not like me, right? And he did not like me because it was a very, very quickly that he began to realize that I was a Christian and that there were certain things I didn't do and certain things I didn't found funny. And he just immediately judged me because of the fact that I was a preacher. Um, he, would, he would refer to me as reverend. He would talk about how I was a man of the cloth. And I'd always have to say, that's Catholic. I'm not a Catholic. I'm a Baptist pastor. But Jesse was the only person that I worked with that gave me a hard time for my faith, that would intentionally talk about uh, subjects that he knew would make me uncomfortable. I, I tried my best to just separate myself. I Listen, I'll, I'll be honest. My approach, I wasn't there to tell everyone in that building how to live. I was there to work. If God gave me the opportunity to be a witness and a blessing, I did that, but I wasn't there to tell everybody how they should talk. If I found myself in a situation that I wasn't comfortable with, I removed myself from that. And some of you have that option. Some of you don't. I pray that God can help give you wisdom if you find yourself in a work environment that's hard. But everybody else had respect for my beliefs. Jesse did not. And man, there were some times where I wanted to tell him, dude, I'm not a Baptist pastor anymore. I'm not a Christian anymore. We're going to talk about this man to man, right? I wanted to tell him exactly how I felt. But there were several occasions where by God's grace, this isn't about Pastor Matt, this is about God's grace, I just tried to be kind to him. When I worked with him, I just tried to work hard with him. When I found out about what was going on in his family and his life, I just tried to engage and to ask him about his children and to ask him about different things. And when he had a time where he was out of the office because he was sick, I tried to text him and reach out to him. And when Jesse left, he left before I did. He was walking around the facility saying goodbye to people. He didn't leave on good terms, let me just tell you. He was, see you later, you know, good for nothings. And he walked up to me and he said, Rev, I, I, I still don't understand. I'm not a Christian, but I appreciate the way that you acted when you were here. Now, that's nothing because of me. I'm thankful for the grace of God. But here's the thing. People want to treat you in a certain way, to get you to act a certain way. The Bible says we don't just not revi- offer reviling for reviling. Counterwise is blessing. If you have somebody in your life, a neighbor, a coworker, a friend, or a family member, and they intentionally try to get under your skin because of your faith, buy them a gift card. Send them, some, send them a gift. Text them and tell them that you're praying for them. Uh, don't just not respond. Bible says counterwise blessing, that you may inherit a blessing. This is counterintuitive. This is not the way we think, but it is the life we're called to. Don't respond with reviling. The Bible says counterwise blessing so that you'll inherit a blessing. At the end of uh, that passage in Peter, he says, eschew evil and do good, seek peace and ensue it. That ought to be your heart and that ought to be my heart. Christians, 
followers of Jesus don't go looking for a fight. There's plenty of that going on in our culture. There's evil at work, and they want to get us caught up in a fight. That's not how Jesus' followers live. Blessed are the peacemakers. Our desire is to help people see the love of Christ. That doesn't mean we're not going to say things sometimes that bother people. Because if you live out your faith in an authentic way, people are not going to get it and they're going to get upset. That doesn't mean that there aren't going to be times where you have to speak the truth. It does, right? We're not talking about some passive way of living that just says get along to get along. That's not what I'm talking about. What we're talking about is the goal is to get people to Jesus. That's the goal. The goal is to point people to Christ. And so I'm not going to respond in my flesh. Um, I'd like to say that there were always times where everybody that behaved that way in the workplace, that I was just constantly on my best behavior, right? But that's not the case, right? Sometimes it's just hard. And, and, and we're trying to be faithful and we're trying to follow Jesus and we feel this opposition. May we remind ourselves, it's Jesus is the light of the world. The reason there's opposition is because Jesus changes things. And we keep our eyes on him and he can use us And he can use us to see change in the world around us. The opposition of the people is an example of how Jesus is the light. But the second example for tonight's lesson, and then we're done, is the faithfulness of the healed man. So all this pressure that they're putting on him, all this uh, intense um, pressure that they're getting, they're wanting him to either change his story, right? Or if he won't change his story, they want him to stop talking, right? Just Stop telling the story. Or if you're going to keep saying, the, saying what you're saying, change the story. right? And that's the pressure that he's feeling. But despite all this opposition, he continues to be bold and persistent. He refuses to be silent, and he refuses to change his story. We talked about how he was bold and persistent. And what exactly does that mean, and what does it look like? The Bible says that after his parents bailed on him, In verse number 24, Then again called they the man that was blind and said unto him, Give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. And in verse 25, he says, He answered and said, Whether he is a sinner or no, I know not. One thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. And so when when they continued to press, I mean, and think about what has just happened, right? If you're him, and I don't know exactly how it went down, but if mom and dad walk in and you're like, oh, finally, somebody to back me up. Like, you tell them, I was blind, and it's just like what I told. Listen, mom and dad are going to set the record straight. And they're like, I don't know, ask him. And so now here he is. He's alone. And the Bible says that despite being abandoned and despite the pressure, he still speaks. He says, listen, he's a sinner. I don't know. I just know. I was blind, and now I see. He is not going to back down. What we're seeing from this man is what we see in the New Testament. This thing called boldness. A willingness to speak the truth without fear and without apology. Now, when we say he was bold, it's important to make a distinction about what we're talking about. Because when we read about boldness in the New Testament, it is a defining characteristic of first century Christians. And there's There are certain characteristics of boldness that can help us recognize, like some of us, some of us, I'm talking about me sometimes, right? We get angry and get upset, and we lash out, and they would say, I'm just being bold. The Bible says I'm supposed to be bold. 
Well, yeah, but boldness isn't the same thing as being grouchy or being angry or being upset, right? Boldness is something that comes from the Holy Spirit. It's a work of God in our lives. So when we talk about boldness, when we say that he was bold, we're talking about a very specific thing. It's not just, he just said what was on his mind. Well, that's not boldness. I just told him exactly how I feel. Well, that might be so, but that doesn't mean in the New Testament sense, when we read about in the book of Acts, when they were bold, that you're doing what they were doing. What does it mean in according to the New Testament to be bold? There are several places we could go, but I love this passage in Acts chapter 4. The apostles have been, they were taken before the rulers, and the rulers said, stop with the witnessing. If you keep witnessing, we're going to have issues. And so they left, and they went and found their brothers and sisters in Christ, and they all got together, and they had a prayer meeting. And at the end of the meeting, they said these words in verse 29 of Acts 4. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thine hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. Now listen, God wants, Jesus is the light of the world. He wants to bring light into the darkness. And one of the ways that he does that is through the faithfulness of his people, right? It's one thing, I'm going to be a witness. It's another thing that when opposition comes, I'm going to continue to be a witness. And that's what we see in this man. The fire starts to, uh, he starts to go through the fire and he's still a witness. And one of the ways that he's a witness is he's bold. And how do I know when I'm being bold for the Lord? The Bible makes it very clear that it's a work of the Holy Spirit. That means that whereas boldness, true boldness is, there's also the fruit of the Spirit. I can know that I'm being bold and not just angry because there's also love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and faith and meekness. It's, it's from the Holy Spirit. Not only is boldness a work of the Holy Spirit, so if it's, if it's boldness and it's coming from the Spirit, there's going to be some other virtues that are present. But it's also all about the gospel, right? What we see is that when you're bold, the message is the gospel. How can I know if I'm not being bold? Well, I'm very loud and opinionated about this and about that. But what about the gospel? What about Jesus, right? I know I'm being bold, Holy Spirit-filled boldness, when what I'm talking about is Jesus, when what I'm talking about is the gospel. The motivation for boldness is also seen. Why did they want to speak? Because they wanted people to get saved. That's the motivation. I can know whether I'm being angry or being bold if my motivation is to let them know what I think. Right? If my motivation is for you to hear what I'm saying and change your mind, but if my motivation is that people would hear the gospel and be saved, if what's motivating me is transformation in people's lives, that's how I know I'm bold. That's how I know it's the Holy Spirit that's doing the work. Uh, Jesus is the light of the world. He wants to use the faithfulness of his people, continuing to be a witness, continuing to move forward in our faith despite opposition. He was bold and he was persistent. I just love this about this guy. He just doesn't quit. He just keeps on going. Right? And they finally, listen, your parents have bailed on you. We're going to throw you out of here. And he won't stop. Don't be weary in well-doing, the Bible tells us, because in due season, you'll reap if you faint not. Right? The Bible makes a promise to us that we reap what we sow. 
And you and I can be faithful. And if we're faithful, God will bless. I don't know exactly what that's going to look like in your life, but I know that God is faithful and he will bless. Don't give up. Some of you have family members. They're not saved. You've been praying for a long time. Don't give up. Some of you have been trying your best to live out your faith in your workplace and you feel like, I'm not getting anywhere with this. Don't give up. You've gotten discouraged. Maybe you've tried to get connected and serve in different ways in the church and you feel like you're not, you haven't found your place yet and you're, you're not really sure what the next step is. Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't be weary in well-doing. In due season, you'll reap if you faint not. Be persistent. Continue on in the work that he's given to us. He was faithful because he was bold, he was persistent, but he was willing to suffer. As we close this out tonight, this is such an amazing part of this story. This man had been blind from his youth, from his birth. Most of his adulthood, from what we can tell from the text, has been spent on the outside, begging, and along the side of the road, just trying to get what he can out of life. Now he can see, and he finds himself on the inner court of the synagogue. Right? Not out by the gates anymore. Now we're on the inside. And he has a chance to stay on the inside. They've made it clear, if you keep talking the way you're talking, we're going to cast you out. He had a chance to be on the inside after a, a life of being on the outside. And he says, to keep following Jesus, I'll take the outside again. And what it means to follow Jesus is to be willing to go to life on the outside, right? To be willing to suffer. Now, here's the thing. We live as followers of Jesus in America in 2023. We're very blessed. We have a lot of freedom to be able to gather and to be able to worship. There are places in the world where they don't have that. And we have a lot to be grateful for. That doesn't mean that we don't face opposition, that there, aren't, there isn't persecution for our faith. There is. But what we read in Scripture is an invitation from Christ to bear in our body the marks of the Lord Jesus to say, I am willing to suffer shame for his name. I am willing. There's going to be some rejection. There's going to be some opposition. There's going to be people who don't understand. There's going to be people who make me feel bad for following Jesus. But I'm willing. This isn't a oh, let's feel bad for ourselves. It's not about feeling bad for ourselves. It's about a life of following Jesus, recognizing there's going to be some rejection, recognizing that there's going to be some opposition for our faith, and putting our trust in Him, keeping our eyes on Him. It's not about, oh, woe is me. Sometimes we even like, I don't know, we kind of like play up the persecution thing. Like, the worst thing that could possibly happen to us is that we'd be persecuted for our faith. And listen, I I don't know what it's like to live in a place where if I choose to go to church or if I choose to live out my faith openly, that there's legitimate threat to my life and to my health. But I ask myself the question on a daily basis, if I got to that point, what's the level, what's the depth of my faith? In Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews talks about how they sacrificed these animals for sin in a sacrificial system outside of the camp. And so Jesus went outside of the gates. That's where he went to be sacrificed on the cross. And what does he say at the end of verse number of, in that verse, verse 13? Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his retro- reproach. Why? For we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. This world is not our home. We're just passing through. 
power and popularity and all the things that the world values, these idols that people worship, that's not the call of the believer. And so, yeah, no, it's not easy all the time. And sometimes it's difficult to deal with the opposition. But we don't have a city here. We seek one that is to come. We're living for eternal things. And so we keep our eyes on Jesus. God worked in and through the testimony of this man, not because he was just willing to be a witness, but he was willing to continue to be faithful, even in spite of all the opposition that he was facing. And my encouragement to you is whatever you might be going through in your life, you might be here tonight and there's real opposition. You're struggling in, in, in your obedience and to continue in your commitment to Christ. My encouragement to you is to be faithful, to be willing to, as Paul said, bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus that all may bring, that it may redound to his glory because that's what it's all about. It's for him. It's for his glory. And so my prayer is that we would allow Jesus to be the light of the world in and through our lives, through our witness and through our faithfulness.